Good morning, First Baptist. Thank you for your prayers. I'm feeling much better this week. Thank you very much. Um, as it turns out, there's a new American religion. And in 2005, a group of researchers decided they wanted to figure out what do teenagers who describe themselves as both religious and Christian really believe? So they went out and talked to 3,000 of these teenagers. And by the time the study was over, they concluded that the faith that was held and described by all of these teenagers could best be described as something that they called, and I'm going to tell you what it is, and then I'll tell you what it means, moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic in that God wants us to be good and moral. Therapeutic in that God comes to help us work out our problems. And that word deism meaning that he's far off and rather not involved personally in our lives. Now when they studied these teenagers, they, they actually were able to boil down what they believed in five statements. The first is that a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Secondly, they believe that God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. <clears throat> Third, this is where it starts to get more interesting. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Fourth, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And fifth, good people go to heaven when they die. Again, 3,000 teens who describe themselves as being both very religious and Christian. Now see, there's a lot of problems with, this, with these points. There's another aspect of this study that deserves our attention as well. The researchers who conducted thousands of hours of interviews with this very carefully identified spectrum of teenagers discovered that most of these teenagers learned this at church. And that very few of them had ever actually had a theological discussion with either of their parents. So what kind of God is this? This is not the God who thunders from the mountain. This is not the God who's going to stand in judgment someday. As a matter of fact, they were able to boil down these statements and these conversations with teenagers into this sort of succinct statement to describe the God that they had discovered. In short, God is something like a combination divine butler and cosmic therapist. He's always on call, takes care of any problems that arise, professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves, and does not become too personally involved in the process. Now, I'll be honest. Frankly, I think that this particular God can work very well with the average American lifestyle. 
You may have looked over at the other row of cubicles and you looked at a friend that you know is an atheist, maybe one that you know is a Mormon, and you've thought to yourself, you know, life, frankly, seems to be working pretty well for them. Maybe even better than me right now. Tell you what, God, this is what we'll do. I'm going to kind of do my thing over here. And when I run into a problem, when I hit an issue, I'll call you up, get you involved, help me work things out. But generally speaking, just sort of stay out of life, and I'm going to keep doing what I enjoy. You see, there's a problem with that. Because that's not the God of Christianity. So the question that comes to us is, how do we bring God into every area of our life? Not just the problem times, not just the bad times, not just the medical problems, but every single area of my life being brought under the control of God. How do we do that? It's what we're going to talk about today. We're winding up our series today on the book of Judges. And I want to recap for just a minute what we talked about last week. It was a painful, painful chapter, one of the most difficult chapters in the entire Old Testament. Where we saw this Levite, he had a concubine, which was like a, a second-class wife. And he took that concubine, threw her out to an, an angry mob who abused her to death. She was raped. When she died on the doorstep of the house, she, he took that body... He actually divided it into 12 parts and sent it out to the 12 tribes of Israel as a cry to war. He wanted justice, even though he himself really deserved no justice. So the war cry has gone out, and now we come to Judges chapters 20 and 21 that we're going to be looking at today. I want to start out by reading Judges chapter 20, verses 1 through 11. And if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord in Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. Remember, it's the tribe of Benjamin uh, who is being called into question, the ones they're going to war against. And the people of Israel said, Tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, and I and my concubine to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. And all the people rose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, and none of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot, and we will take men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel and a hundred of a thousand and a thousand of ten thousand to bring provisions for the people that when they come, they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they have committed in Israel. 
So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. May be seated. Sunday after Sunday, week after week, month after month now, we've watched this downward spiral again and again, watching the wicked leaders come and go, watching these Israelites become more and more and more like the culture they were supposed to be destroying. And again and again, we see what happens when there is no king in Israel and everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. There's no sheriff in town, and things have just run amok. They're going to fall flat to the lowest point this morning. And today we're going to see what happens when you ignore God. And ignoring God leads to horror, to havoc, and to hopelessness. We're going to walk through these chapters, and you're going to see how far things are going to go. And then finally, we're going to talk about how do we bring God into every part of our life. And actually, in that section, we'll talk about three ways to do that. But these will really be sort of the big takeaways from the book of Judges. Three general observations that we can definitely learn from in the book of Judges. So we're going to move on now. And clearly, um, things have, are, are about to come to a head. You heard in those verses I started with this morning... Israel is about to go into a civil war. It's about to go to war with itself. The tribe of Benjamin, they committed this horrible crime against a woman, this concubine of a Levite. And the whole nation of Israel is coming against this group as a result of this atrocious act. Now, as we go through these verses, don't forget that this was all started by this one Levite. And he is no saint, okay? That's putting it mildly. He was pimping out his concubine. We talked about that last week. He'd thrown her out to these men like a bone to a, a group of hungry dogs. And by the way, after she died, it was absolutely against Israelite law the way he disposed of her body. Nothing is working the way it's supposed to be working here. So we see now, starting in verse 1, that the people are all gathering, the storm clouds are gathering. It says there in verse 1, they're gathering as one man. It's an interesting statement. As a matter of fact, the theme is repeated when you get to verse 11, that the men of Israel gathered as one man. Now, why is that being emphasized, this one man statement? Because last week I pointed out the events were taking place with the men gathering outside this house in Gibeah. Okay, Gibeah was that town owned by the Benjaminites. Wanting the man who was there to come out, they had plans of raping him. Now this was very much like the events that took place in Sodom and Gomorrah. As a matter of fact, there's a, almost a, a perfect parallel between what was going on there in Gibeah with these men showing up to this house and what had happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. But see, there was a very big difference between what happened in the book of Genesis with Sodom and Gomorrah and what's now happening here in this place called Gibeah. <clears throat> because as you recall in Sodom and Gomorrah, who was it that brought justice down on Sodom? It was God. 
See, God himself did the work there in Sodom and Gomorrah. But see, that's not what we have happening here. This is not the case. The men are assembling, and they have not called out on God one time up to this point. And then we move on to this next set of verses, starting in verse 12. The angry gathering goes to the Benjaminites, and they say this, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now therefore give up the men, this group of men that were going to do this, that did this thing, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. So the few men that did this atrocious thing, they're deciding the fate of their countrymen. They are all acting on the testimony again of this Levite, the one that mutilated the corpse, took no responsibility for being the one who'd thrown her out to the angry crowd. There's been no appeal to God to intervene at this point. No request for wisdom. So we're on this road to civil war. By the way, civil war is one of the most stringent oxymorons out there. There's no such thing as a civil war. It says there uh, in verses 14 through 17, the, the, Benjamin, the Benjaminites get together 26,000 men, 700 from this town of Gibeah. The other 11 tribes get together 400,000. Then we get to verse 18, and then something very interesting happens. It says, The people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God. Now remember, everybody is gathered. The soldiers, the soldiers are there, the men of war are there, they, the, the men of the sword, the text says, have all gathered. They're, they're right there at the edge. But look at verse 18. The people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, Who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? The Lord said, Judah shall go up first. So with everybody gathered, what do they do? Well, maybe we should pray about this. Let me tell you what this is like, okay? Uh, just imagine you're, you're a, a, a young person, man, woman, and you're, frankly, you're dating somebody that you know you shouldn't be dating. But for whatever reason, you keep on dating them anyway. And, uh, and then, you know, this person, they ask you to marry him, and you know this isn't somebody you should marry, but you keep going along with it anyway. Then the wedding invitations go out. And people are invited to this wedding, and people are saying they're going to show up. And you keep on going along with it, and then... Uh, the, the groomsmen and, and, and the, the bridesmaids are all asked to be part of the wedding party. And the day finally comes. And the, tux, and the groomsmen and the groom are standing there in their tux, the bride there in her dress. They're about to walk the aisle. And they stop and they say, Lord, is this really who you want me to marry? <laughs> See, that's not a prayer for the wedding day. We want you to be praying that right now. See, that's exactly what's going on here. They had every intention of going to war. But what do they do? Well, let's stop and pray. So these Israelites are lined up. They're ready to go. God gives them no promise of victory. Only that Judah should go first. One of the biggest, one of the most powerful tribes in Israel. And then look what happens in verse 21. The people of Benjamin came out of Gibeah 
and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. Judah, you go first. What's God doing here? Because you're the one who I'm going to bring the hammer down on first. You're not going to have, you can pray, and I'm, I'm, I'm even going to answer you. It's not going to be the answer you want. Prayer didn't bring victory, and a good many of them were killed. The men of Israel, then they go to the Lord again in verse 23. They're even starting to show some remorse. And the people of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until the evening. And they inquired of the Lord, shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? <laughs> They're brothers now. They're people in Benjamin. And the Lord said, go up against them. Yes, by all means. They're crying out. These are our brothers. This time it says that 18,000 of the Israelites are killed. So now 40,000 are dead. 40,000 of their best fighters, by the way. 40,000 of the best fighters. They should have been fighting the Canaanites, but they're not. Now they're fighting each other. <clears throat> Again they pray, but now they're praying big time. We get to verses 26 to 28. Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel. By the way, Bethel means house of the Lord. <clears throat> and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening. And offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Now they're fasting. Now they're offering offerings. And the people of Israel inquired the Lord. For the ark of the covenant of God was there. And now they're appealing. The ark had worked in the past. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron minister before it in those days, saying, now they're appealing to the priest. <clears throat> shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? <laughs> Actually, they're offering to stop, and the Lord said, go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. The weeping, the fasting, the burnt offerings, appealing to a priest. By the time we get to the end of chapter 20, more than 25,000 of the Benjaminites are killed. As a matter of fact, it's very interesting. Much of the imagery used to describe the defeat of these Benjaminites is the same Im imagery used to, to describe the abuse of the concubine. The author's using very similar language in both cases. So the Israelites burned everything down, and it even they, they killed all the animals. Verse 48. Everybody's dead. So all of these were acts of revenge. God was, at best, an afterthought in the plans that they had made and what they'd done. So now what do they got? <coughs> now they've got a great big mess on their hands. Now they realize they have a problem. And we start to see it in chapter 21. How are they going to clean up this mess? The bodies, the, the, the land... And we get to verse 21, and the havoc and the hopelessness in that Israel makes this very strange appeal in chapter 21, verses 1 through 3. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, <clears throat> no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. Remember that. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God, and they lift up their voices and wept bitterly. Now they're weeping over their own actions. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel? That today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel. Well, what are they doing here? 
I mean, isn't this kind of a silly question? Now they're interrogating God for the things that they had done. They were the ones looking for revenge, and now they're offering again sacrifices. <coughs> now there's a unique problem that's facing them. Because they left alive 600 men, men only. No women, not their wives, not their kids, but they've left alive 600 men, and now they've got remorse, and they want to see the tribe of Benjamin go on, but the only way that's going to happen is to provide wives to these 600 men. Well, they just swore not to give their daughters to them. So now what are they going to do? They come up with a plan, and by the way, it's a bad plan. As it turns out, there was one town who provided no warriors for the battle that day. It was in Jabesh Gilead. So what do they do? They take 12,000 men, <clears throat> they go to the town, they kill everyone. The text says they even kill the little ones. See, this is, this is how bad it's getting. They take the 400 virgins they find there, bring them back to the camp at Shiloh, they give them to the Benjaminites. Here, here's 400 women for you. But they're still short 200, right? 600 men. So this is what they do. They, uh, they find out that there's going to be a dance. True story. In Shiloh. And they decide that because there's going to be a lot of young women there dancing, they're going to go up and they're going to take 200 of them. Now, the 200 that are going to be there, there's a problem because these will be 200 of the daughters of the men who'd sworn they wouldn't give up their daughters. So this is what, this was the rationale. They're going to explain to the fathers, well, we're going to take your daughters, and because we're taking them, technically you're not giving them. <laughs> Therefore, the vow wasn't broken. So what has happened now? They had one testimony of the Levite against his concubine. And, 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 and now they have kidnapped 600 women who will be forcibly raped by 600 men. The people have finally become like those they were sent to destroy. Their attempts to remedy the problem that they created have only created more problems and more evil doing and a hopeless future. You see, these are the consequences when God is left out. This is what happens. There are cultures out there, by the way, that will exact justice on women, actually in some Islamic cultures, by gang rape. That's a that's a means of punishment towards women. That's sort of what's going on here. See, this is what happens when God is left out. This is the direction a culture will go. Uh, this is the direction a country will go when there is no God. So then, how do we bring God into every area of life? <clears throat> There's a wonderful proverb. Actually, it's probably my... My favorite, uh, if you're allowed to have favorites, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, you may have memorized it at some point yourself. 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. We just saw what happens when you acknowledge God in none of your ways. So I think there's at least three things here we need to consider when it comes to bringing God into every area of life. And, and even, again, as I was thinking about the book of Judges as a whole, you can easily start to see themes that come up that take these Israelites down the path that they went. And um, so three things here. First of all, trust God's instruction. Trust God's instruction. In other words, am I asking myself, am I, am I bringing every single area of my life under the subjection of the Word of God? Because the Word of God speaks directly to so many areas of my life. Yeah, obviously, it's, don't lie, don't make idols, don't commit adultery. Be subject to the governing authorities of the land, Romans 13.1. There's so many areas that Scripture speaks directly to that will always, always, always supersede any of my own reason and personal judgments on things. It is, no matter how tempting it is, sin always complicates. It never makes things easier. It will always complicate if these Israelites had only seen that they were doing what was right in what? They were doing what was right in their own eyes. That'll always get us into trouble. Never lean on your own understanding. Don't just do what you want to do. So that's number one. <clears throat> Trust God's instruction. And then how do I continue bringing God into every area of my life? Secondly, be humble. Be humble. You can be humble in every single area of your life. You know, this isn't the first time that I've said we need to be humble as a congregation. And guess what? It's probably not going to be the last. Because it's so easy not to do. And pride always goes before a fall. And it's the sin that God hates the most. Pride is what makes us think we can do it without God. And then when we're looking at Gideon, and, and we saw his pride thinking he, he was faithless and fearful in the beginning of the story. And as God gave him a couple of victories, what happened? It became all about him. He called them his victories. A little success, it went to his head. And then we had Samson. He thought he could defeat anybody. He thought he had no man that could overcome him. But then what does he do? He slips up and he tells his, his deepest secret, the source of his strength to Delilah, who'd seduced him. And he loses it all. He was blinded by his pride. And we can become blinded by our pride. All of these men were links in the chain that took Israel down to the place that it wound up. In every situation we're in, we have the opportunity to show humility. We've, I, I want to bring up two ways that we can, in every situation, be humble. One is by criticizing yourself more than others. 
We talked about this with Gideon. To criticize yourself more than others. Um, it's easy to find the faults in somebody else. Is it, easy, is, is it easy to find them in yourself? Oftentimes, we are more guilty of the thing we're criticizing somebody else about. There was a, an archbishop uh, in the 17th century that spoke to this. <clears throat> and he said, Can we with justice feel contempt for others and dwell on their faults when we are full of them ourselves? Our strong feelings about the faults of others is itself a great fault. Are you more harsh with others than you are with yourself? And then secondly, cutting out defensiveness. Cutting out defensiveness. We have a tendency to want to vindicate ourselves. When somebody brings up some kind of a charge against us, we have a tendency to say, oh, wait a second, oh yeah? Hold on. That's not true. Augustine called defensiveness the lust of vindicating ourselves. You know, how we choose to live is typically going to speak more loudly than anything we have to say. So usually defensiveness on something is, is pointless. It doesn't mean that you don't need to speak up if someone's lied about you, but usually that's not the case. We've been criticized, we're angry, and we, we want to be defensive. So be humble. Um, when we choose to be humble, we are choosing to be dependent upon God. And then, again, third, be thankful. Be thankful. Again and again and again and again, when God blessed these Israelites with peace, what did they do? They strayed off again and again and again. You know, oftentimes, it's in the good times we are most likely to completely forget about God. Enjoying a certain lifestyle, enjoying this, enjoying that. God, I'll bring you in when there's a problem. Right now, there's no problem, so frankly, you can stay up there on the shelf. That's when we have a tendency to, to stray off. In those times when you are really enjoying life, that's the perfect time to practice this attitude of thankfulness. God, thank you that I get to be on the mountain today. Thank you for this kayak, this fish, this elk, this camper, this cabin, this view, this weather. God, thank you. And carry that into your life. You know, we are actually made, we were created to be thankful. So much so that Harvard University, they did this study. <clears throat> and... Um, and they found out that, that we can train our brains to be grateful by just setting aside, they said, five minutes a day for practicing gratitude. And they did a one-week study in which people were asked to take five minutes a day at the same time every day to write down three things they were thankful for. And they didn't have to be big things, but they had to be concrete. For example, uh, I'm thankful for this delicious takeout dinner, the steak at Wyoming Ribbon Chop. Or, or I'm thankful that my daughter gave me a hug. Or I'm thankful that my boss complimented my work. So three things, five minutes for one week each day. At the, end of the, at the end of each month, researchers followed up and found that those who practiced gratitude, including, including those who just stopped after doing it for one week, were happier and less depressed. And then after three months, the participants who had been part of the one-week experiment were still more joyful and content 
And then at the six-month mark, they were still happier, less anxious, and less depressed. And they came up with, they, they had hypothesized that the simple practice of writing down three Thanksgivings a day over the course of a week primed their minds to search for the good in their lives. As Christians, how, how much good do we have in our lives? What do we have to be thankful for? So be thankful to God. <clears throat> if you're in good times, be thankful to God. Don't take them for granted. But even if you're not in good times, be thankful to God. Find something you can thank Him for. So bringing this together, bring God into every situation in life through trust, trusting in His instruction. Always, always, always trusting in His instruction above our own reason above our own ideas about how to do something. Be humble and be thankful. Uh, you know, that repeated theme throughout the book of Judges, they were doing right in their own eyes. We saw it again and again. Unwilling to give up their own wills to God's. <clears throat> There's a wonderful quote that I found that I want to leave you with from Andrew Murray. He was a pastor in South Africa back in the 1800s. And he said this, the true pupil, say of some great musician or painter, yields his master a wholehearted and unhesitating submission <clears throat> in practicing his scales or mixing the colors in the slow and patient study of the elements of his art. He knows that it is wisdom simply and fully to obey. It is this wholehearted surrender to his guidance, the implicit submission to his authority which Christ asks we come to him asking him to teach us the lost art of obeying God as he did. The only way of learning to do a thing is to do it. The only way of learning obedience from Christ is to give up your will to him and to make the doing of his will the one desire and delight of your heart. Please pray with me. God, forgive us for doing what is right in our own eyes. God, I pray that we would take to heart what you've given us in the book of Judges. That we would always surrender our will to yours. That we would never look to the left or to the right. But God, even as the world attempts to offer us so, so much, that it can never compare to what you've given us. Thank you, Lord. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. And amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.